And we're live. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Steady Compass. I'm your host, Quez. And man, do I have a spectacular guest for you today. His name is Bill LaVoir Barry. You know him for his work as the president and chief esports slash gaming visionary officer at Generation Esports, as well as his former tenure as the CTO for IBM Esports and Video Games. We're sitting with a decorated veteran in the world of both business and gaming. Bill, welcome to the show. Great. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you to be here. And thank you to hopefully share some knowledge today. <laughs> yeah, man. I, I think uh, for a lot of folks who don't know, Bill and I have a a relationship from past experiences. And Bill was actually the very first person that really opened my world of what esports is outside of that of a fan. What did it mean to participate as uh, a technology provider? What does it mean to participate as a visionary, as someone who is a an advocate for seeing the space do well, Bill, for, for me, was that individual that opened up that door. It became more than just, I really like this video game and I want to be good at it. It was like, no, let me also show you what this world encompasses. So yes, ladies and gentlemen, there is uh, a lot of fun to be had today. And again, Bill, very grateful to have you on. So thank you. Thank you. Of course. <laughs> so I want to share with you what where I see esports as currently, or at least what I'm describing as the biggest problem. And I call it the neighbor's pie problem. And my thinking with it is that the game publishers are the folks that own the IP. And this will be League of Legends, Call of Duty, pretty much any of the major esports that we might see today. And as a result, they are the ones who are probably seeing a substantial amount of the upside in their game. And of course, why wouldn't they? They've done the hard things. They've made a game that people can spectate, so there's great viewership. They've made a game that has high competitive skill in order to compete at the highest level, and they've made it infinitely replayable. So, you know, a 10,000-hour game. Yeah, it is a bit of a tongue twister. So there's good reason for these folks to, to cherish and really hold on to their IP. And as a result, going back to the neighbor's pie... Many of the other participants of esports, whether the, those be the streaming services, production companies, the esports organizers, all of them want a piece of that pie. And I believe that a big struggle comes from the fact that they don't own the pie. It's not their pie. So I keep pushing on with this essence of how does esports, as an esports organization in this example, create their own pie? So that is the, the first topic I want to open up with. Do you think that's an accurate assessment of what we're seeing today in the esports industry? I, I see that as a big part. I think that's not the only piece of the baking of the pie here, so to speak. I think one of the things here that's also very important to the gaming world is the community of gamers. And I think the community is learning how to find his voice and how to be vocal in a sense using things that are native to the gaming world, using streams, broadcasts, like you mentioned earlier, but having the reverse flow back into those that make the pie. So those that make the pie understand that there's a community out there. There's a community that I am responsible for, in addition to that people want me to respond to and interact with and socialize with as part of that. So I think that's one piece that's also very important to that effort to get that flowing back between what we call the executives in the game business and those that are us in the community that participate in the community, engage, play, provide social feedback, provide our blogs, our webs, 
streams are using our, all of our efforts to be part of that community as well. So I think that's a big piece. Now, I think what happens is that sometimes that, that community piece is forgotten. I think what happens is, is that the, some of the businesses may forget how to respond, how to react, how to interact with the business until it's probably in your face. And that's the time you don't want to have it in that, at that moment. I think, well, let's take the use the, the recent effort with the Unity game company where Unity wanted to rework their licensing. And you saw what happened there. Huge backlash. Huge. Huge. I think that's one effort. You've heard terms like tone deaf or other things. But I think what happens is that if you miss the social listening and the impact of what your community is doing and what they're trying to develop, build, expand upon, that's going to happen. I think the other example that we can use recent history is with Stadia. I think Stadia was there to kind of race, put a technology into the public's hands without understanding what the public wanted as another example. So I think those pieces can be added into the ingredients of making the pie of this discussion. So in this case, understanding your community such that you can make sure that if you are going to build this particular thing, that it's something that folks actually want, as you stated with the Stadia experience. And to your point about being tone deaf, Unity Labs perhaps not taking the time to make sure that they can assess the field in a way it can cost them. And that backlash was very much evident. Yeah. Now, but I wonder, like, how can this, how does that extend to a situation where a publisher may not know how they feel about esports. What do I mean? Maybe particular publishers are more open to being involved in esports. And we've seen those groups do things mm -hmm. like revenue sharing models, such right. that any of the esports organizations that participate have some kind of split from any of the upside that the, the publisher has. Now, a lot of that information is technically not public. There's an argument that's being had about whether or not esports is even if it's even worthwhile for the from the business side of things on behalf of the publisher you know, uh, is it worth as a publisher if i'm the publisher is it worth my resources my involvement into this thing that does not necessarily equate back to games being sold in-game assets being sold new players joining the ecosystem whatever that opens up another pandora's box about is esports a loss leader is it a marketing initiative or is it what I think, what my personal belief that most people look at it as is a cultural phenomena such that we want to watch the best players in the world go at it head to head. And we'd like a space for that to be cultivated. Yeah. As yeah. a result, this feeling of who does that responsibility fall on to create that space? And, and I think, again, this is where I see a lot of the difficulty between a publisher and esports org, a, a streaming provider, which is everyone probably feels that they're contributing something to this massive industry, but it's not quite clear whose job it is per se. Does that make sense? Kind of what, what I, what I'm laying out so far? Yeah. 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 There's a lot to unpack here. So let's try to unpack a little bit of it and look at several things here. So no, number one, esports, you know, a bucket esports and video gaming together sure. for this purpose are native to the youth of our planet. Uh, we've heard numbers, 3.2 billion gamers, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the, the core thing is that many of the youth that are growing up today have grown up on games, have grown up on mobile devices, have grown up on things to interact, be socially thing. In fact, design and developing games themselves, such as Roblox, a good example, Minecraft, 
is a good example, right? Star Ladder, the new metaverse experience is a good example. So all these products and publishers and visionaries have realized there's something to tap into here, number one. But how do I do it? How do I do it effectively? Here's a new twist. Maybe this is, maybe it's not super popular with esports or gaming, but the new twist is that a lot of governments now are seeing the impact of video games and esports. They're seeing, hmm, what if I use the, the social structure of games, the impact of games, all the technology, such as you started to learn back in our day that goes into games and harness that with the youth. And it becomes almost like an economic engine in a sense. We offer that economic engine. Various countries are now offering, asking for assistance. How do I use games and esports, right? Because if you look at some of the history, so as we go across the map of the esports world and the gaming world, South Korea was very big, bang. Then went over to Europe, bang. Came to North America, bang. But now it's moving again to Africa and MENA again, Oceania. So these areas are experiencing rebirths of games and esports themselves. So now the publishers have an opportunity to really craft stories and ways to connect again with that youth. I think that's what happened. There was that, that fissure that happened between perhaps the publishers and marketing teams, those that were connecting with the youth and maybe perhaps parking some of that ego at the door, so to speak, when you come into work, say, Hey, I'm trying to reconnect, I'm trying to reconnect with the esports and video game committee. I think that's maybe some ways that we can unpack all the conversation from today. If that makes sense. Absolutely. So perhaps we can continue, we can keep unpacking this. Um, and I, I'll bring it back to what I was getting at, which was initially that those, uh, publishers, some publishers are open to their involvement in esports, Others mm -hmm. may not. And I think we've seen at least two in recent times, uh, not be so interested per se, or at least have minimal involvement in esports, And that would be Nintendo and EA. Now, the interesting thing about Nintendo, which I had, I had read in a kind of like an interview where one of the founders or one of the original creators of Super Smash Bros was being asked, how come, how come you don't listen to the competitive community as much? And even mm -hmm. and directly from his voice, he says, the truth is that we make this game for 99% of people. And the people that are yelling at us about fix this, fix that are the 1%. People that are focused on such tiny nuances within a game that it doesn't technically apply to the rest of the people that we're actually trying to market to. And, and I think, again, even EA, I think EA was having some interest regarding Apex Legends, which is, in my opinion, one of the more entertaining esports as of right now, especially with the recent, recent Apex Legends group stage, a lot of fun to watch. Mm -hmm. But again, it's that sense of at a distance. We're involved at a distance. And what happens? A lot of those esports organizations that competed in that tournament have left. We saw Energy make their leave. And we saw even just a day or two ago, in reference to League of Legends, which Riot is more of a supporter for esports, but we saw that TSM just sold their League Champions series slot, $10 million over to Shopify Rebels. And this is, can probably open up our next stage here, which is it seems like there is a massive interest in esports still. From to your point, from governments who see it as an economic engine, you can teach mm -hmm. the youth how to have particular skill sets, both in data and AI and cre content creation and in game development. 
skills around social, keeping people off the streets in general. Yep. There's a lot of good that can be had on the government side. There's a lot of good that could be had from the business venture side. But I think that publishers are still largely confused about where they stand, or at least unsure about where they stand with esports. And it's, I like what you say. They want to reconnect, but I cannot help but think that a part of them is also saying, does this make sense for us financially? Yeah, I think part of that is that from a business side on the gaming and esports side is that the way that these publishers may or may not be telling their story. I like your example, the Smash Brothers example, because the Smash Brothers community is very, so I use the word religious. <laughs> yeah, very that's fair. Right? Yes. About their product and their games and their communities. I was at a, a local Smash Brothers event just last week here in Minneapolis at Wisdom Gaming, and it's unbelievable. The, the firepower that goes on in there with the, the imagination, the creativity, the team building, the shoutcasters, the analysts all getting involved in that. And the one reason I like Smash Brothers so much is it's so community-centric. Yep. It's actually built and developed, and a lot of people bring it together from the grassroots. And then, like you're saying, then the publisher's like, how do I react to that? <laughs> right? Yeah. How do I react to that? But the reaction is that the these publishers and developers are going to in one way, start to react because the community may get bigger than you, publisher, which can happen, right? That's happened in several, I'm not going to name names, but that's happened in several cases where the community has really been very powerful in both community involvement, speak, language, interaction as part of their community as well. On whether it's Reddit, YouTube, Twitch, you know, all the major platforms and some of the unmajor platforms, people are very communicative. Right. And that was a very big impact. And I think what the publishers now realizing is that now I have the influx from these governments asking for X, Y, and Z. I have the community being very vocal. I think it's maybe offsetting a bit because you may not know how to react, how to communicate and how to do that feedback. In some cases, publishers may have stockholders they have to appeal to. In other cases, the, the media is very loud and very barking sometimes. So there's a lot of noise that they must ingest. But if we just take a step back here and take a look at some of the ways, how do I simply ingest that community information, understand it? Are there tools available to me as a publisher to synthesize all the noise? I think that's a, a great help. And some of them are starting to do that. I like your, your example of Epic Games, right? Epic is very large in itself, but they don't put themselves in that place. They're like, huh, let's use our power to do something good and effective and get the committee involved versus top down anarchy. I'm a hierarchy of a key publisher, right? And there's some of those great ways to do that. Cause I think some of the publishers that are learning how to tap into the community, how to retell their story, there's been some stumbles. Yes. Sure. Some of them are learning how to retell their story. I think that's going to be very effective. Going to Epic, I, I'd actually call them one of the evangelists, I think, of, I don't know if I would say of esports altogether, but at least definitely of video games. I'm sure you saw their Fortnite creator when they mm -hmm. have Unreal Engine editor now. And yep. the, the user-generated content that's coming as a result of that. And how often do you hear about a game like having the longevity and the cultural relevance that it still has to this day, like Fortnite, right. both on a competitive right. level and also on a creative level. And to your point, I think they've done a masterful job of always being very close to their community. I think they're an example of that 
Now, whether, or I, I guess the next question might be, are they using that feedback to also gauge their experience with esports and how they want to transmute that experience? Because as far, from what I could remember, the last major for, Fortnite World Championship, I think it was, right? The F W C something like that. Sorry. But <laughs> the last major one that I saw with Booga, it was like the kid that won. It was like three and a half million dollars or something of that sort. Is from what I can tell, the last extravagant part like thing that Epic did in esports. I could be wrong about that, but that, no, that's important. Let's touch on that for a second. That's, let's do that's it. key. Because to the community, these big prize pools, while shiny, don't generate the community, right? That's right. So for example, if a publisher or a group or a country or business is like, hey, we're having a 3.5 million prize pool. Everybody's going to show up and do it. It's like, not necessarily, right? Because if you're not telling the story about why you want people to come to your event or why you want us to come together as a community, because we gamers, we like to be seen and seen by others. We like to get together, right? Very humanistic people that's us true. gamers right that's why you have the big things like traditionally like e3 gdc dream hacks and those are so powerful because not only can we get together but they can see different things are happening ideas blossom from these events etc but if you put you just smash a five million dollar price purse what, what does that mean what does that really mean it, it may mean something to a few sponsors yes but you have to really involve the community to be part of that growth up to that 5 million. That's right. So if we take the example of Smash Brothers, now if the Smash Brothers starts to, I guess, mature some of its thoughts or maybe some of the governance and gets to a 5 million prize pool, that's going to be powerful. It's like the Dota 2 community. The Dota 2 community got to those prize pools because the community worked to get itself there. That's right. And they also had an interesting paradigm, uh, or excuse me, mechanism with their battle pass. So that was actually how a lot of that was being funded as well, was as participants of the game continue to invest and buy and play, and they would buy those battle passes and that would be accumulated into what would eventually become the prize pool. I'm sure with some additional sponsorship money as well. That's, in my opinion, I like that you bring that example up because that is an example of where community involvement has a direct correlation or at least a direct relationship to how popular an esports may be. That's why I, that's even still while I bring up the example of Apex Legends, where mm -hmm. even if the publisher is not as involved, the community alone, to your point, can become so big that it doesn't yeah. necessarily need them. So yeah. let's put, so I want to put the ball back into the hands of the esports organ, or, or organizations because they're probably the ones that are trying to pick up the ball. So, right. meaning, how am I getting? these people who care about the same things that I care about to pick a house per se. Mm -hmm. now, and I'm going to tell you what I mean right there. Pick a house. Why? Because I believe that esports organizations have to evolve. And one of the ways in which I see them doing that is becoming culture curators. You, you might remember in, in Hogwarts, there's four major houses and those mm -hmm. four major houses are usually used to describe the particular subset of people. And people often really identify with those places. And I believe that esports, largely an esports org, will have the same kind of phenomena, but for the vibes. Now, mm -hmm. what the vibes could mean is a lot of things. The cyberpunk, edgy aesthetic, fuck the government, anarchy until the, to the ends of time. Cool. That's that esports. The people that care about the research and then the people that care, 
You know what I'm saying? So right. that, yeah. yeah, I believe that is where the the next iteration of an esports organization has to evolve to, such that it's no longer just a logo. There's a story that is involved behind the esports organization that people can resonate with. That there's yep. something there for them to connect with. Yeah. Which again is what I really like about what you were saying. That the story is indeed very important. I don't know right. that esports. I'm sure some esports orgs have done. I shouldn't say some. I can think of three major ones that have done phenomenally well in North America and probably others worldwide. The three I'm thinking about is Optic, Hundred Thieves, and Phase. Despite Phase Clan's not so great standing today, that they still have a story to tell and even a comeback. Right? That might be. Mm -hmm. the major story that people are interested in. I'm rambling at this point, but no, what, what are you thinking sense. about this evolving? Yep. I think that's perfect. Cause I think you look at some of the ways that the, the communities have built themselves up as we hit on and to your point, the storytelling is very key, very critical to the understanding. Who am I watching? Who am I engaging with? Are there ways we can actually tell a story within the game too, as you're actually watching the game, for example. I'm, I'm wearing one of my favorite t-shirts from Overwatch. Sometimes Overwatch though, can be complex for the new viewer. Are there ways you can tell a story about Overwatch during the game? In addition to the fine shoutcasts and analysts, we all know that tell a very great story and provide the feedback and the play by play, but let's tell a, a broader story, right? For example, if you're independently owned esport org, or you're part of a, a league, there's no difference really. Because you just still want to tell a story so your fans can engage and understand some of those things. And are there tools? Are there options? Are there things that we're using now, ChatGPT or other products out there that can help tell that story and engage in that gameplay? Can you tell some real-time gameplay during the actual gameplay itself to understand, you know, what's happening right now on this phase of Overwatch or what's going on here with StarCraft? For example, one of my heroes on StarCraft is Scarlet. And when she kicked some things out there and done some things that she wasn't supposed to do, you tell, you saw Twitter almost melt, right? On some of her gameplay, right? And so those are very key and very critical. Now, maybe a step further, let me take another a leap of faith here and some of these things around. Now we have the involvement in the metaverse, right? The metaverse, which allows the community to engage Roblox and steroids in a sense, right? Because you're beyond to engage and build and contribute to the game, similar to what you do in Roblox, but now you're actually part of the game. One example that comes to mind is Star Atlas, right? Star Atlas lets you design your most EVE online experience within Star Atlas, which is very cool. And I think those things are their ne our next step uh, into the esports world. Storytelling, engagement, and the gameplay itself. Can you connect and interact with the community real time during the gameplay. Those things are maturing right now. And then we'll jump into the metaverse connect as well, uh, e even broader, which is very cool. Very cool. I think I'm just scratching the surface. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I think the, I think metaverses in general have, uh, cause there's, I think there's a ton of metaverses out there. Star, Star Atlas is perhaps one of the more recognized ones on Solana. Yeah. Leveraging the Solana blockchain, but man, there's also several across the Ethereum blockchain. There's several across some others, but I, I think metaverse, or at least when I think about metaverse, because I don't know that the definition is also clear for everyone across the board, at least not yet. Right. But when right. I'm interpreting it, it's more of the connected world that we all live in. One can make the argument that we're 
Uh, you and I are in the metaverse right now because we're connecting digitally in this way. But <laughs> what else it unlocks? Your freedom to transact, your freedom to, in, to interact with others, your freedom, like translating all of that stuff to the digital world. And then I like what you say, right, about being able to tell stories, to build stories together, tell them together, share them with your friends such that now they can be immersed in the same things that you care about. And then one of the things that you had mentioned even earlier into that was around products. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we have today for esports is that a lot of those companies that are businesses themselves do not have a very clear product. And I'm viewing, I'm viewing several things. So like I look at 100 Thieves, for example, who has recently come out with, I think, four separate products. Number one, which is a game development studio, which even that is not necessarily a guaranteed successful venture. You have their Juvie product, which is an, an energy drinks. High Ground, a sister company that they own for hardware, keyboards. And then I would consider their fourth one their apparel business, so merchandise. Cool. Now, one of the frustrations that I have, which even though this is a smart move by, East, by 100 Thieves to diversify themselves and not just pigeonhole into one specific thing, is... Even if all four of those businesses were in the green, if they were to take all those profits just to continue feeding the beast, so to speak, of esports mm -hmm. and what it cost them to run that organization, we still have not reached what I would say is a sustainable business. Right. So then it's got me thinking, if those are not it, then what becomes the mechanism by which businesses can get involved? And the reason yeah. I ask that is because, again, with Shopify, seeing them spend $10 million on, a, on an LCS slot, it's got me thinking that they see something and perhaps they're making money, question mark? That's where I'm at. Yeah, that's good, good points, good points. I don't believe we can solve the silver bullet on today's call. Agreed. I think there are certain areas that are very key that you hit on that we can pick out and perhaps expand upon. One of the areas that may not be totally cool with the esports community or something that is not really talked about a lot is some type of governance system, right? Of having all the leagues and groups come together under a governance system, perhaps maybe similar to the NFL or similar to NBA in that sense, but without the top heavy hierarchy, right? Have so, some type of governance system. So both can share within the pot. For example, if I'm the Cleveland Browns or if I'm the Minnesota Rocker, I'm flowing from that pot. Ensure success. Maybe something like that. Maybe just the pot. I'm just thinking. Thinking out loud. Tough yeah. here to have the governance. And the, the governments also do, can help out with things, rules or policy making or safety of the esport troops at play. Because there's a lot of sometimes you know, scandals that we see in the media where contracts are not recognized or the actual team players were misappropriated with funds or funds disappeared, et cetera, et cetera. Just didn't get paid even. Yep. List goes on. So I think some of those things would be very important to a form of governance. So again, this government can be as concise as a gaming community wants it to be, or it can be as loose, but it still has to have some type of fungible activity to allow folks to do things like that. So if the local team wants to pull in, the, in some funds or this pull in some funds, they're part of that community pot, right? It, Almost like it, a metaverse itself in yeah. terms of business structure might be well, an idea. And then tell the stories about 
tying that thread together, I think that's a big one we've been talking about a lot today, but it's very important about telling your story and how it's engaging and what's going on. For example, that big enterprise company, now they can tell some stories about what they're doing with LCS and they can build upon that. And one thing I've seen too is that there's been a blossoming too of those reality products out there as well that tell engaging with the game players, what they're doing on their off time, tell those stories. And those are very powerful, very effective as well. Especially in a lot of countries that have that grassroots feeling still. Those types of programs and shows are very cool. And one thing that comes to mind right now is Good Game Asia. They're taking off because they're telling the story. They're bringing in the players. They're talking about things like healthcare, fashion. They're tying that all together. So if we use your example, they have all those side businesses. Tell a story with that. Maybe add some music. Maybe add some RDM in there and bring that together as part of a story so they don't appear to be off businesses. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I really celebrate what you're saying here because what it sounds like you might be describing is a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, a mechanism by which utilizing this Web3 infrastructure, you can have a community-owned thing. That thing could be the esports organization. It could, and then that organization could have these subcommittees, as you said, as, mm-hmm. or at least the way I'm also understanding your examples here about jumping into fashion, jumping into music, and then all of that can be encompassed as a story that's being told. There's actually two major teams that have been born in the last two years and have made it to the big scenes. The first one for ALGS was Blackhand, B-L-V-K-H-V-N-D, and mm. they placed third on a stage next to some of the biggest names in esports. Yeah. Uh, so that was amazing to see. They were a team, or rather, there was there was an organization that signed a team from the Philippines. We mentioned earlier that it's been a growing area of emergence mm-hmm. for esports, absolutely the case. They signed that team, they competed, qualified for the group stage, and made it all the way to third place. Quite a story to tell. Yes, it is. And then in Dota 2, we talked about Dota 2 earlier, there's also another esports organization founded by a DAO in this way. So there's no singular own owner. There's no top heavy government that that is involved. Everybody who is a participant of this network has a direct vote on what happens within the organization. And that's Nouns Esports. And they are at the international. They will be competing uh, again on a stage with some of the biggest names in esports. Nice. And that to me is just a like crazy to have seen that happen because of how we might have understood esports businesses to operate prior, which is maybe some retired professional, they jump up, they come into some venture capital or maybe some sponsorship money and let's just sign the biggest names and get to it kind of deal. Right. We see very different stories being told with these folks, which is here's a random, I shouldn't say a random team. We did these, we did research and we found we, we did the Oakland A's approach, the money ball approach, and we <laughs> exactly. assessed the, these hundred teams and out of all of them, and, and that assessment was done by a committee inside of the decentralized organization. It's a very cool process to have witnessed it come from, con- from concept to actual fruition, and then to, again, see them on the stage. A very cool experience. I'm curious to hear what you think about an approach like that, something where it's no longer singularly owned the ownership is no longer centralized but rather spread across as many participants maybe even just fans as we can call them in the space does that look like something worth pursuing in terms of evolving 
I believe so very much because that's, you're getting very close to the community involvement, that aspect, very close. I think only the, the business owners and legalese people can figure out the thin line between there, but I think it's so community driven that it's a very powerful adaptation to the current business models right now, because now we have more community involvement. There's more impact coming from those that are quote unquote owners, because it also has that, that metaverse feeling as well contribution, right? Maybe people can do things like tokenization involvement in that and other things, which can be available on the blockchain very easily as part of that. And, and it would make it more of a, I should say the touch point to the community, they can use that as an example, how to do other businesses the same way in the esports world. And maybe it could be a model that other companies, organizations may take a look at. At first it may seem scary, right? <laughs> But sometimes to create an omelet, you need to break some eggs now. Break and then. some eggs. <laughs> I love that. But, but I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a true testament of the creativity and ingenuity of folks that, that really are passionate about the game in the esports sense, right? They are definitely some people to celebrate. And if you get a chance to check them out after the show, please do. They are, they are both organizations, the Black Hand and Nouns Esports. They're just phenomenal. It's really inspiring, to be honest. It's really inspiring mm -hmm. to see. I want to continue on here about what else, because I'm also just sharing with you some of the stuff that I've been thinking about. And one thing that I, so I was, I mentioned earlier to you that I think a lot of esports, as we know it today, it might be backwards. What I mean by that is a lot of esports organizations are usually benefiting from the involvement of other people in their organization. If I started my own esports org, the one of the first few things that I would do is try and sign some creators that have some notable presence, see if I can get their audience to also resonate with my brand, right, with the with the business. But that, like, I, I again, I call it backwards because I have to eat off of someone else's pie. So one thing that I've been considering, this is just one off example. That stay with me here. One thing that I've been considering is what if there was something that people wanted to sign up for? What if there was an even exchange of value that by you becoming a participant of this organization, you would get X, Y, Z. That seems like a more, at least in the traditional sense of business, seems like a worthwhile trade. Hey, I'll give you this cup if you give me five bucks. Cool. Even exchange of value, we're good. Now, when I think about prestige and when I think about something that people want to be a part of, I think back to those college days of fraternities and sororities and members would pay dues such that they could participate in events in whether they be mixers or retreats, or they would get involved in charitable events and things of that sort. So there's good to come out of the money that they are giving in order to be a participant of the network of a fraternity or a sorority, which might become jobs later, might become a, a handshake, an intro, et cetera. Mm -hmm. What if esports was to take a similar approach where, hey, it's not that we're just out there looking for people to participate, like to, to sign to our team, to be a competitor on behalf of our team. And then whenever I get money, I'll give you a little bit. No, it's, you pay in order to be part of this organization. And then in return, you get whatever that organization might be interested in offering you. 
I think just to keep sharing, I think that becomes a bit more compelling because it gives me an opportunity to do two main things. Number one, make money. And then number two, more importantly, tell a story. So when every 20 year old wants to start a business, what's the first thing they do? They launch an apparel business. Nice. And every 20 year old is going to say, all right, I'm putting my logo on my shirt. Now I'm going to be a millionaire. And then they're shocked when a year later they don't make a million dollars. And the reason is that no one cares about your logo, right? People care about what the logo stands for. What is the story? What's the, what does the brand do? What does it make me feel? If I wear this, what do I identify with? Going back to that, that comparison to the Hogwarts houses. Mm -hmm. So what do you think about a Soho house, a fraternity house for gaming such that I want to be a part of this thing. I want to get these experiences. And if, if I want to be a participant of the industry, I got to have my in. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's been historically, there's been some examples of businesses or restaurants doing similar things as well. One example that comes to mind is like the meltdown bars, right? Meltdown bars became very fashionable and attractive, I should say, to the gaming community just because of their simple essence, how they attracted the gaming community and brought them together. You had events, parties, big things happening. It was a big dream hack here in Montreal for a dream hack in Montreal. And, and you're grabbing all the folks that are, that are playing there and getting together. And I think that's a big part of that. Now, I, 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 I digress for a moment from the gaming world. Let's step aside. If I'm a tourist in New York City, I'll sometimes see a lot of people wearing the New York Fire Department t-shirts, right? Or Truck 49 or FDNI Wi-Fi, all those things. Or Battalion Chief, those t-shirts sell. Do you know why they sell? It's because there's an essence. People can relate. They want to be a firefighter. I grew up as a firefighter, etc. As a little youngster, I wanted to clean up my fire trucks and join the firefighter. That's very similar to community members growing up in the gaming world. I want to be associated with this organization or be part of this organization. And I think that kind of brings our conversation home today is about allowing those people to really connect. So if I'm wearing that t-shirt of cloud nine, or if I'm wearing the t-shirt of Minnesota rocker, because I'm there because I'm group on it or I'm mm -hmm. part of the story, or I'm engaged in that story, similar to someone flying in from Tokyo who wants to buy a a fire department New York shirt when I'm in New York, because I can relate to that. I think those are some of the same things. So I think if taking your concept of building a club or group, is that something that we can build natively and naturally? I think so very much. And then we can tell a story about that and how people are coming together. It's like, I'm coming, I'm going to Joe's eSports shack, right? Play eSports, have some good food, tell the story and those things. And then it's going to grow and grow. So I think that's a something to hold on to. Very much so. I'll tell you this. A lot of it is, has been inspired by what I see as well. I, I think the world will constantly inspire you, and then you could use that to go on and inspire the world as well. Some of the people that, that started birthing that idea for me are uh, two organizations in particular. We talked about South Korea. I also want to take it over to France because there's two teams. In South Korea, there's Gen G, and then mm -hmm. in France, there's the Carmine Corp. And what's very interesting about both of these in the last year and some change is that they have, Carmine Corp is in the process of getting their own venue. And then Gen G has their own proper place for the team to come in, to study, to, and I say study as in like watch film, 
to practice scrims, relax, train, etc. Right? Carmine Corp is taking it a step further and saying that hey, we have that that will exist, great, but we also own a venue in which is there's another monetization, another revenue stream that comes into our organization. And it's because it's only a 3,000 seated arena. So it's reasonably limited. And what I thought was very interesting is that they're accompanying the availability of those seats with a subscription model or a membership model. And I'm sure you've seen plenty of organizations do like fan clubs or loyalty programs or things of that sort. What I think is interesting is more of this kind of VIP essence, the season mm -hmm. ticket holder yeah. vibe. Like, so you're not only just a regular fan, you're, no, you are a diehard fan. I just remember in your old content, you used to talk about how being a fan of only one esport is like half of the battle, but that to be a fan of a real fan of East, I shouldn't say a real fan, but to evolve the fan is to also get them to be interested in all the other things that is encompassed in the world of esports, whether that be how they interact with teams, whether that be how they interact with the publishers and it all connected just now, but <laughs> I found that I found it to be so interesting because this is like stuff that you're saying from four or five years ago that I think is insanely relevant today, such that to tie it back to Carmine Corp, such that I see very brand new organizations starting to implement the same thing. Not only are they competing or rather not only are they showing their team perform for this one specific esports, but now you have a membership in which you can be, you get to be a fan of all of the teams that right. organization encompasses. Yeah. So you know, I'm you're no longer about our conversation with governance, right? A loosely tied governance and brings that together. That's a good example of the community providing its governance and providing its policing and providing its oversight itself versus having a hierarchical company or a, a big enterprise five company doing that for you. That's right. I think that's where things, when I was looking at my magic eight ball four years ago, I was envisioning these very same things that we're talking about right now, about the growth and change based on human condition, how people play, how they engage, how people want to grow and also mature in the game space too. Right? I'm not talking about age from 20 to 25. I'm talking sure. about the maturity as well as as people want to ebb and flow in the game space. I'm very excited and humbled that a lot of these are coming together. I shook my eight ball and we had a chat a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I think was part of that eight ball, which you were one of the only people I, at that time I'd heard talking about it was like this idea of a campus. Basically. I didn't know, I didn't hear anyone else talking about something of that sort. And I, as I cause it, had, it never left. I always remembered that. And as I kept going through my ebbs and flows of life in, and at least, especially in this research, I kept coming back to that about, man, that's a place where there's opportunities to monetize, whether it be through a kitchen, like through a, a restaurant or multiple restaurants or a bar, it's a place to bring people together. So you not have the physical phenomena of mm -hmm. bringing, like literally having people together, playing games together, PC cafes and, and. You also mentioned things around like hotels, such that the the, the teams could just fly in and, and sleep there. It, it was very comprehensive is what I'm trying to say. And here we are, and I can see where, I can see teams starting to wrap their head around, maybe that's what we're, that's what we're missing. I guess I, I'll ask you, say we were able to go 
back five years ago before the VC boom, or at least what I'm calling the VC boom in 2018. I'm sure there was a lot of money already coming into esports prior to then, but just stay with me here. VC, a massive amount of VC is about to come in, and you happen to know, how would you have played those cards all those years ago versus how it's been played uh, over the course of those, the last four or five years? <laughs> wow, that's a powerful question. I think one of the things, um, you know, as and many that know me is that very passionate about the telling that story, that engagement educating families and getting families together to be able to be part of that game experience. So I think even back then, one of my big things was in addition to the schools, the STEM, the ed tech, and tying those together to create kind of an economic package, if you will, but also something positive so you can tell stories to bring in the families, the gamers, the non-gamers together to experience it. Because many people at that didn't even think that they're gamers. They go to some of these events, they're like, oh, wow. It's like eye-opening. It's like seeing what's happening, how people are engaging, seeing how people are actually setting up the event. Right? Some people are very happy just to watch the event be set up because there's so much that goes on in that. You got producers, broadcasters, engineers. You got the people that are setting up the, the, the PCs, the consoles, the anti-fraud machines, all those that go into the experience. And that's pretty powerful because... At, even back then in 2018 is where you tell them the story, bring that together to make that happen. And then the campus feeling it would natively happen. It would natively roll out. Then you could have that campus used 24 seven day or night. People want to do education camps or they want to do STEM and STEAM programs. They want to do other things on that campus related to gaming as a core. I still stand by my words. <laughs> hey, man, in, in my eyes, it just seems like it would make the most sense. It would present the most financial opportunities to, one, lit, literally use the space. And then number two, maybe this is just the, the investor in me. You also you buy the land. You own the land. And that's also, <laughs> like, right. long-term, pretty substantial, especially as more and more starts to be built around you around that area. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, that to me was one of my favorite things. I, I meant to ask you about it today because... It was just uh, an old thing, and here we are. It still sounds as, as one of the better Very ideas. Yeah, yeah, Very yeah. relevant. Very relevant today, absolutely. All right, so do you want to... Are we okay to go for like five, ten more minutes, or are you tired Actually, of time? I do have to bounce, get back to generation life. <laughs> no worries. Bill, we have reached the section of the show where I like to put the mic in the hands of my guests. You can give a shout-out, some love, some advice, anything that you'd like. The mic is all yours. Woohoo! Hey, everybody. Thanks for getting us together today. I really appreciate that. It's catching up after many moons of big blue land. It's also fun. I just want to give a shout out to everybody that's watching, all my friends, fans, perhaps past clients that are also friends and fans. Those that are going through changes right now due to the esport career changes and gaming changes that are going on as well. Um, just very excited and I'm looking forward to, uh, a very blessed end of uh, 23 here and uh, 24 that's just going to kick. <laughs> so thank you all. Thank you very much. Awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, you can catch our show on every major source, on every major platform. Be sure to follow Bill. I'll, I'll provide all of his links down in the description below. As always, take care of one another. Take care of yourselves. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Peace.